Good morning. This morning, we're a little bit between studies. We finished up the Lord's Prayer the last several weeks. We'll start in the book of Ephesians next week, I believe. So today I have the opportunity to come and talk to you about anything that suited me, which is always a dangerous thing. I've been praying for a few weeks about what to talk about, and I think uh, the Holy Spirit put it in my heart to speak about what's on my heart. So what I want to do this morning is spend a little bit of time talking about tension. Tension. I have uh, tension and some conflict and some stress in my life. I'm sure many of you do also. Our world is full of tension. It's all around us, no matter what we do. But I want to talk about a very specific kind of tension in my case. The tension I want to talk about this morning is the tension that I have between me and Jesus Before you go running for the doors, I realize that having tension between me and Jesus is possibly a dangerous kind of tension. Uh, And so, at least during the first part of our discussion this morning, I'm going to talk about I and me, and then maybe halfway through, if you can identify with this tension also, I'll switch it up and talk about we and us, but we'll see halfway through. First of all, I want to clarify that I am a Christian. I was saved by faith alone in Christ alone trusted in Jesus as my Lord and Savior uh, about 30 years ago. And so I call myself a Christian. The word Christian simply means a Christ follower, and so I'm a follower of Jesus. And that's a good thing, because Jesus wants me to be a follower. That's not the tension. The tension that I have between me and Jesus is around two things. One, how Jesus wants me to follow him and how I want to follow Jesus. There's a tension there. So, how does Jesus want me to follow him? In summary, Jesus wants me to follow him with a radical commitment. With a radical commitment. How do I want to follow Jesus? Well, you'll find out in a few minutes. But since there's some tension there, you can probably guess. But what I want to do first is look at Scripture and see how this idea of a radical commitment to Jesus is spelled out in Scripture. So, Turn, if you would, in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, or you can follow on on the screen uh, if you want to. It's uh, talking about when Jesus called his first disciples, and he did it in an unusual way, and you'll see in a second what I mean by this. Let's go ahead and read that. Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that is Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, Casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called to them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, When Jesus calls these guys, it's an unusual call in my view, he simply says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And what he doesn't say is he doesn't give them a full, complete story. He doesn't tell them where he's going. He doesn't tell them and answer the question, what's in it for me? He doesn't lay out a prospectus or a business plan with specific objectives and milestones and deliverables. He just says, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. 
But he did give them some other clues about what it would look like, and he did tell them specifically around two things. One, he told them what the adventure, the adventure was going to look like. He told them what it would look like. And secondly, he spelled out very clearly for them what he expected out of his followers. So I'm going to look at that now. First, Jesus says the adventure, well, the adventure won't be all that pleasant, and it, frankly, it won't be very easy. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We'll look at several verses in here. Beginning in verse 16, Jesus speaking again to his disciples, he says, Behold, verse 16, chapter, chapter 10 of Matthew, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. He says, beware of men. He doesn't tell them to beware of wolves or serpents. He says, beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. He slide down to verse 21. He says, brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents, and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And slide down to verse 34. He continues and says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. So Jesus doesn't make it sound like a very pleasant journey, does he? He says, come with me. You'll be arrested and flogged and dragged before kings. Your friends will turn against you and betray you. People will hate me, hate you because you follow me. Your life will be in danger and even your own family will turn against you and your family will be your enemy. Well, that's not a very pleasant picture of the adventure. And then secondly, Jesus tells his followers just what he expects out of them. He wants a committed bunch of guys. He wants guys who are all in. Guys who are not half-hearted. He doesn't want wimps. He wants radical followers. He wants people who are fully committed. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16, 24 and 25. Then Jesus told his disciples, and a disciple is simply a follower of Jesus, and so now he's speaking to me, because I'm a follower of Jesus. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This little phrase, deny yourself, means that Jesus wants us to be wholly committed to him, not to me. Because my natural inclination is to be fully devoted to me. Jesus says, no, I want you to be fully devoted to Jesus. And there's a little term here that says, take up his cross and follow me. It's a reference to the Roman tradition. If you've got a prisoner who's condemned to death, the Roman tradition was that the condemned prisoner would be forced to carry his own cross to his own crucifixion, much as Jesus was. So the point is, is that Jesus says, follow me, and by the way, you should be ready to die for me if necessary. Turn over to Luke chapter 14. 
becomes even clearer that Jesus is looking for a committed bunch of guys. Luke 14, beginning in chapter 20, uh, verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, I have to be more committed to Jesus than I am to my wife or my children or my parents. And if I can't do that, I'm not qualified to be a disciple. I even have to place Jesus above my own life. Slide down to verse 33 in the same chapter. Jesus says, So so therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. That word renounce is one we don't use too often, but it basically means to reject or abandon or to leave it behind. And if you can't do that, Jesus says, you're just not fit to be my follower. So you see that Jesus calls us to a very radical level. He wants us to be radical followers of Jesus. He doesn't want us to be fans. He doesn't want us to be groupies. He doesn't want us to be reporters or spectators or commentators, or critics. He doesn't want us to just watch or study. He wants us to do more than go to a website or read a book or watch a documentary or wear a T-shirt or wristband. He wants us to do more than put a bumper sticker on our car. He wants me to be a player. He wants me to strap on the shoes, put on the helmet, get in the game, knowing that I'm going to get hurt and bloody and maybe killed. He wants me to put Jesus at the top of every one of my lists. He wants me to put Jesus above everything, above my wife, above my kids, above fame, above glory, above my job, above money, wealth, toys, you name it. And it's a big ask. So what he wants from me, he wants me to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus. And that is where the tension comes in. Because if I'm honest with myself, and maybe if you're honest with yourself, I want Jesus to save me, and I want to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm not sure I want to be a follower like that. I'm not sure I want to have that level of radical commitment. I think I'd rather be a casual Christian. There are some guys in the New Testament, guys like Peter and James and John and Paul and Stephen, Silas, Barnabas, Timothy. These guys were all in. They were fully devoted followers of Jesus. There weren't any wimps in the bunch. They weren't half-hearted Christians. No casual Christians there. And when I compare my level of commitment to Jesus against what Jesus calls us to do, I sometimes am a little bit embarrassed and I'm a little bit ashamed and that's that embarrassment and that shame that causes the tension. And frankly, it's a healthy tension. But instead of wanting to give myself fully devoted to Jesus, sometimes I want to be saved. But I'm not sure I'm willing to pay the price that Jesus is calling me to. And Jesus says, if I'm not ready to reject and abandon and leave behind everything, including my own life, I'm not fit to be his disciple. 
I'm not fit to be a follower. That's a pretty high standard. Sometimes, instead of being a Jesus follower, we are content to be what I call Jesus stalkers. Stalkers, as you know, are people who like to study other people because they're afraid to have a relationship with them. And so, Jesus stalkers, you know, they find out a lot of facts about Jesus. They read as much as they can. They study as much as they can about Jesus, but they don't really enter into a relationship with him. Now, don't misunderstand. Learning about Jesus and reading about him and studying about him is good as far as it goes. As far as it goes. But it doesn't go anywhere near the level of commitment that Jesus wants from us. Jesus wants us to study and to learn and to know about him and about God and about the Holy Spirit and about plan for salvation. But if that's all it is, if there's no relationship, that's a far cry from what Jesus is calling us to. Let me give you an example from real life. Take my wife. I know a lot of facts about her. I know a lot of information. And I'd be wise to do so. I know her social security number. I know her phone number. I know her date of birth. I know who her best friends are. I know what kind of coffee she orders at Starbucks. I know why she doesn't like to go to Mexican restaurants. I know that she likes a clean kitchen, but not necessarily a clean car. I know what time she likes to go work out at the gym, and I know what her favorite chocolate bar is, but if that's all it was to it, if I just knew a bunch of facts about her, I'd just be a stalker. And so if I didn't have a relationship with her, if I didn't love her, if I didn't speak to her, if I didn't ask her how her day went, if I didn't share my deepest feelings with her, if I didn't hike the mountains with her, if I didn't babysit the grandkids with her, if I didn't comfort her when she's discouraged, if I didn't dream with her and make plans for the future, if I didn't do any of those things, I'd just be a stalker. She wouldn't want that. And Jesus doesn't want it either. They have a word for guys who study girls but are afraid to make a commitment to them. Do you know what they call them? Bachelors. <laughs> Fortunately for many, it's just a temporary condition. But the fact is, it's easier to be a stalker of Jesus than it is to be a follower, especially if we hold ourselves to the standards that Jesus laid out for us. Those are radical standards. And Jesus says, you can't be my follower, a disciple, unless you, unless you meet those. He's very clear on that. So then I look around at other Christians and I think, well, maybe I'm the only one. And I see that I'm not. I see a lot of casual Christians around me. George Barna runs a research organization, and they do a lot of research on particularly Christian religious organizations. I find his work, his research, to be both fascinating and troubling at the same time. It's fascinating to, to dig into and find out, on general, what people think about God and Jesus and their faith, but it's also very disturbing, very depressing, actually. Two things that I've, I've discovered from Barna's research about Christians in America is that, one, their beliefs and their lifestyles are virtually indistinguishable from non-Christians on average. And secondly, that most people who call themselves Christians, and I mean born-again Christians, people who believe that they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus for salvation, most of them 
in an increasing number over the last 10 years of Barnes Research would say that their commitment to Jesus is half-hearted or marginal at best. Now, we might conclude from that that Christians are maybe a mixed-up bunch. But I think it's more likely that many of them are simply not Christians at all. In other words, that they think they're saved, but they're not. That they think they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus, but really they haven't. One of the scariest things that Jesus ever said is in Mark chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 7. Determine there with me. At least I think it's pretty scary. It's Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Matthew seven twenty one says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now, don't misunderstand this. Jesus is not saying that our good works and obedience to God is the way that we get into heaven. He's not saying that. That's inconsistent with the totality of Scripture. What he's saying is that doing good works and obeying God's command is the evidence of our salvation, not the basis of our salvation. We get saved by faith alone and Christ alone, and then afterwards, the evidence that we're saved is the good works and the things that we do in this life. Because if I'm truly saved, that's what I'll do. I'll get saved by Jesus and then I'll go out and do good works as evidence of my salvation. And Jesus says, there'll be a lot of people, many people, Jesus says, that will show up at the gates of heaven and when they die, when Jesus returns, and they'll say, hey, I want to come in. And Jesus is going to turn them away. He's going to say, I never knew you. And the evidence... The evidence is missing. They claim to have trusted in Jesus, but there's no evidence of it. And so when they get there, Jesus can turn around and say, you may have thought you trusted in Jesus, but you didn't. And not only that, there's no evidence of it in your life. I think what Jesus is saying is that there are many people who believe they're saved and they're not. And I don't want to appear irreverent when I say this. But some maybe filled out a card or raised their hand or walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. And that's the extent of their salvation experience. But the Bible never says that's how we become Christ, uh, Christ followers. We don't become Christians by raising our hand, walking an aisle, filling out a card or praying a prayer. There is no one in our Bible in our New Testament that got saved that way. The people in our, New, in our New Testament Bibles got saved in one way. They believed in Jesus and trusted Him. And it was something that took place in their heart, not on a piece of paper. And I know you're thinking, well, you're being technical about this. Yes, I am being technical about this, but many people, I think, have walked an aisle, filled out a card, raised their hand, prayed a prayer, and they think that's the conversion experience, and it's not. If the change doesn't take place in your heart, it didn't happen. If it took place in your heart, then fine, walk the aisle, make an evidence of that. There's got to be a lot more than that. It's got to be a commitment of the heart. It's got to be inside where it counts. It's got to be genuine. It's got to be real and sincere. And then after that, the evidence of that salvation 
will flow out from our good works and for the things that we do for Christ. Jesus says very clearly that he wants a radical commitment and he won't stand for casual followers. Turn to Revelation 3 for me for just a second. Revelation 3, Jesus gave a message to the Apostle John and told him to write a letter to this church called Laodicea. In Revelation 3, verses 15 to 17, this is what Jesus says to this church. He says, Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Strong words for Jesus. For for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus has no room for lukewarm followers. Jesus wants me to be a follower who's ready to get in the game, who's fully committed. So that's the tension. So now I'm wondering at this point whether that tension that I'm feeling is maybe shared by you. I'm wondering if you're feeling now, thinking to yourselves, hmm, my level of commitment to Jesus maybe isn't exactly what Jesus wants. How many of you are feeling that same tension? Would you raise your hands? You know, I'm feeling a lot better about this now. So now I can say we and us. Is that okay? We have this tension. But, you know, if we stop, we, if we stop and think about it for just a second, the commitment that Jesus calls us to isn't isn't crazy or stupid. If we stop and think about it, and we think about the things that we got when we were saved, if we think about that as a gift, and what our response to that gift ought to be, it's not as crazy as it sounds. If we are truly saved by faith alone in Christ alone, our natural response should be a huge amount of gratitude. Because the gift that we got was not just one big gift. It was a whole bunch of huge gifts. And I just want to just sort of remind you of what some of those gifts were. One, we were elected by God before the foundation of the world to be saved. Based on his mercy and his love, we were regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Whereby a little bit of God's goodness got into us. So one, we could hear the gospel. And two, we could actually respond to it in a positive way. Three, we heard the gospel message because somebody came to us. And that person was sent to us by God. We got converted and saved when we trusted in Jesus. And we all think that that's something that we did. But frankly, the Holy Spirit somehow comes alongside us and helps us to do that. And that's a gift too. And at that point, we were justified. That is, we were declared innocent of all of our sins. And at the same time, we were adopted into God's family, whereby God became our Father. And then we were given the Holy Spirit to live in us, to guide us through the rest of our lives. And then we got a reservation in heaven. And then we were given the spiritual strength to endure to the end. And then the Holy Spirit helps us to become more and more like Jesus every day as we walk through this life. And then we got promised a new and glorified body on the day of resurrection. And we were surrounded by other Christians like those sitting here this morning to encourage us on. And we were given the many and great promises that are in our Bibles whereby God is going to protect us and provide for us and forgive us and comfort us and work all things for our good. And last but not least, Jesus died for us. Amen.
And it's all free. This is like Christmas Day. This is the Christmas Day of all Christmas days. When you get up and you don't deserve anything because you're just a child. And you walk out into the living room. There's these Christmas presents all surrounded all over by the Christmas tree. And you know you didn't deserve any of them. If you're like me, the bigger the gift, the bigger the gratitude. And so when we get all that for free, how should we respond when Jesus says, follow me? How should we respond when the king of the universe comes along and says, follow me? Do we say, hey, thanks, Jesus, appreciate it, and then just kind of go off and do our own thing? Thanks for saving me. I'll be a half-hearted Christian. No, I think the right response when the king of the universe is calling us to follow him is, sir, yes, sir. Military fashion. Jesus is calling us to be willing to reject everything that we have in our life and abandon it to follow him. That's not easy. It's much easier to be a stalker or to be half committed to be a casual follower. I know. But Jesus won't stand for that. And unfortunately, to many casual followers, someday he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. So, now you have this tension too, and that's a good thing. Now we've got to figure out what to do with that. So, can I simply do one thing today? Can I challenge you? Just challenge you to make a step change in your commitment to Jesus. Can I do that? To be a more fully devoted follower of Jesus, to strive for the standard that Jesus set for us. Now, I know we come from all different places. We're all in different spots in our Christian walk. Some of us are pretty committed to Jesus. Some of us are casual Christians, as I've described. Some of us are sitting on the sidelines, frankly, not even sure whether we want to follow Jesus or not. That's all fine. But we can all make a step change from wherever we are. And Jesus calls all of us to be radical followers, and he won't settle for less. Some of you may remember this. Ten years ago, 2003, I was challenged by four guys to step up my commitment to Jesus. It's a big point in my life. The four guys were Jack Arrington, Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, and the Holy Spirit. Bill Hybels uh, challenged me not just me, but a bunch of business leaders. And he said this. He said, There is no greater commitment a man can make than to pour his time, his talents, and his treasures into God's work of saving souls for eternity. What higher calling could you possibly imagine? Rick Warren said that within two minutes of arriving into heaven, he will cry out, Why did I place so much importance on things that were so temporary? What was I thinking? Why did I waste so much time, energy, and concern on things that were not going to last? Jack Arrington was relentless with me. He encouraged me and encouraged me over and over to use my gifts, my energy, for God's purpose and not just for business. And ten years ago, the Holy Spirit used those three guys to put such attention in my heart that I felt like the only thing I could do was change me. And so ten years ago, almost to the day in October 
5th, 2003, I stood up here on the same stage, not to preach, but just to confess that God had put that on my heart, and I committed before a congregation that I was willing to take a step change commitment in my life to Jesus. And that was a good thing. Looking back 10 years, it was a good thing. Am I where I want to be? Have I met Jesus' standard? Not anywhere close. That tension is still there. But today, I'm doing it again. Ten years later, here I am, committing to you, I want to make a life change, a step change. Some of you may know that about a year ago, I went through a process, very carefully planning it out, didn't jump off the side of the cliff, talked about it, prayed about it, my wife and I. And in July, I quit my job for the express purpose of using more of my time and effort to devote to ministry. And so I'm looking around for a ministry. And I haven't found one yet, but God will help me find it. So today I want to challenge you to do the same, to make a commitment to follow Jesus in a much bigger way. And I know that's a sticky thing. It makes you uncomfortable. It makes you squirm in your seat. And that's okay. He called you to a radical commitment. So... I'm asking you and challenging you to do it. Not because you think it will save you. It won't save you. It will simply be evidence of the fact that you're already saved. So you may ask, well, what should I do? That's a good question. Matthew 28, 19, and 20 makes it really pretty simple. Jesus said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's a very simple statement. There are people everywhere, and Jesus wants them all to become followers of Jesus. Making disciples and teaching them involves a whole bunch of things. All kinds of stuff. Do you want some ideas? These are not my ideas. These are the things that people in this congregation are doing right now. And they're great ideas. Share the gospel with every neighbor, colleague, classmate, and co-worker that you know. Disciple a younger Christian. Be the best mom and dad you can and pass on a Christian legacy to your kids and grandkids. Challenge your life group to make disciples. Go on a short-term missions trip or quit your job and become a missionary. Feed meals to homeless people. Adopt an orphan child. Serve at Camp Blessing for the summer. Join the missions committee. Visit a widow once a week. Volunteer to serve a team or Tamago or Crisis Pregnancy Center. Send a letter of encouragement to somebody once a week for the rest of your life. Quit your job, take a huge pay cut, and go do something significant for Jesus. Teach or preach at a local homeless shelter. Start a Bible study in your house and invite your neighbors. Dream big dreams. Pray and ask Jesus what to do, and then go look for it yourself. Stop reading about what other people are doing. And go do something that somebody might want to write about for you. Strap on your helmet, put on the shoes, get in the game. Don't sit on the sidelines. And as you go, make disciples. Turn people that you bump into into followers for Jesus. Jesus recruited 12 not-so-magnificent guys, and he changed the world forever. So what's your next step? Well, I don't know for sure what your next step is because everybody's different, but I bet it involves choosing something that really excites you 
that really lights you up, that brings a smile to your face. I bet it's something that you already think is beautiful and magnificent and life-changing and eternal. Something that has eternal value. I'm sure it's something that will cause Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant. You should pick something that you're not just able to do, but something that God designed you to do. So I don't know what that is for everybody. But you should find something that God made you to do and then go do lots of that. Go farther than you ever thought you could. Be bold, be awesome, be incredible, be radical. Be radical. Because that's what Jesus called us to do. That's what Jesus called us to do. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you. I'm going to thank you for your Holy Spirit and the way that he brings about tension in my life and the lives of others. Lord, you haven't laid out a road map for each of us individually about how we ought to live our lives, but you made it very clear that you want followers and you want followers to be fully committed followers. You want us to be radical followers. So we thank you for that. It's a high, high standard, Lord God. So I pray for myself as well as all those here this morning. They each of us would take seriously the call to be a committed follower of Jesus. That today we might mark the day whereby each of us makes a step change, increase in our commitment to you and to your goodness. Give us the power, give us the courage, give us the ability to do so. We pray all this in the powerful and precious name of Jesus. Amen.